All right, my name is Brian Mason. And from time to time in church here, uh, persons, lay persons, are asked to speak from their background in addition to their faith in Jesus Christ. So Weston asked me about a Science Sunday theme talk about six weeks ago. So sure, why not? So we've had an accountant speak from the congregation, a computer instructor, so now a microbiologist. So this talk, and yes, this is a talk, okay? I'm not preaching. I am not giving a sermon. And yes, this is a lot harder than music. And this is... <clears throat> And this also helps cover for the Weston Williams International Speaking Tour, which is going on now. So this is a little bit different for format and topic for a Sunday morning, and I know that it's been a while since some of you have been in a science class, so the material may confound at times, but it's only for a Sunday, and uh, I think we'll get along just fine. So the Lord prepared for me to speak today with two events that didn't seem to have any relevance at all to a science and God talk. I was looking to add some activity and a little competition to my life. So I found out that there is a game of Ultimate Frisbee each Tuesday night with Jared and the youth. So if you're not familiar with the game, it's played on a field that looks somewhat like an American football field. And the idea is that two teams try to throw the Frisbee down the field and eventually try to catch it in the end zone opposite to where they are defending. There's a lot of pitch and catch and a lot of running. And most of the people that play the game are over 20 years younger than I am. So <clears throat> at that first night I get there and, you know, you have to, you know, you have to look at the smirks. And, uh, you know, there's a little, you know, unsubtle communication that your wife will weep when she sees what we've done to you. And after that first game, it only took me three days to recover from. And now that, now that I'm in very good shape, it only takes two and a half. So, but the point is, it was great exposure for me to be around youth that have a lot more energy than I do. And that helped me get ready for the next event, which was to go to White Mills Christian Camp for Jiffy Junior Week. Second grade, third grade, fourth grade, boundless energy and very short attention spans that go along with those guys <clears throat> as well. I live usually a very introverted life for the most part in my place of work, in the laboratory, when I'm at home with Karen and Daniel. So I had to find the extrovert button in a hurry while I was at camp. So both of those got me ready to speak today. Now, since I've been hanging around so much youth as of recent, Karen asked me, are you going through your midlife crisis? <clears throat> and I said, do you see a sports car in the driveway? <laughs> no? So, well, this is my pre-midlife crisis. And so I bought a new gun instead. <laughs> good, good. She's not in here, so I get to speak next hour too. So I'm a lifelong Christian. I was raised in the Church of Christ and also in the non-denominational Christian church. I studied at UK and WKU. I earned three degrees and all of them are in science. I choose to believe in the Bible and its truth because God's power explains to me the causation of the universe. His son is the answer to eternal condemnation from sin and because his Holy Spirit guides me in his ways and his wisdom. It's obvious when you hang out in science halls that God's name is not very welcome. He is treated with contempt and indifference, with skepticism and even hatred. And folks are likely to extend those same treatments to professing Christians and give real meaning to Matthew 10, 
Verse 22. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So the venom directed at you helps develop perseverance and wisdom, though. My first college roommate was agnostic, and he would gleefully throw questions at me like, if God is all-powerful, then can he create a mountain that is so large that he cannot lift it? Now, I must confess, when I initially got that one, I didn't know what to do with it, and it took me a couple of years to figure that one out. It turns out that what he was asking me is, lo- is known as a logical contradiction. Only weak, infallible beings can propose contradictions or faulty logic. God is not capable of this weakness. So the mountain existing so large that God cannot lift it is simply an absurdity. Okay. So where does this now leave the practicing Christian, whether in a science field or not, as far as standing firm to the end? Well, let me start by defining science. So the root of the word means knowledge. Okay? In the last 200 years, science is known a little bit better as the method of knowing and a way to discover truth. And here within the last probably 50 years, many now believe that science is the only way to uncover truth. So the Bible actually does reference some scientific phenomenon. So go on and get out your Bible because we're going to go through some scripture. The principles that are illustrated within this little small group of bulleted points that I have up here. This is not an exhaustive list. I chose these because these are most closely uh, related to microbiology. So all of these things would not really be illustrated by modern science until hundreds or even thousands of years after when they are talked about inside of scripture. So the first one, the chemical nature of life. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Turn over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You've probably read those scriptures many, many times, and the word that I want to shift your attention to is dust. Okay. So when you are at home and you are observing the phenomenon that we simply call dust, gathered on this and that throughout the house, what is the major component of dust? Primarily, dead skin cells, right? You're living in there. As time goes on, they slough off of your body and then they collect. Okay, that's not exclusive, but that is the majority component. So now, answer this question, what are dead skin cells made out of? Okay, well, they're made out of elements, okay? They're made out of carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and phosphorus and things like that, okay? So think about Scripture's reference now to clay. Okay, so in the New Testament, we hear usually about how the potter shapes the clay. What's the simplest definition of clay? It's wet dirt. Okay, easy enough. The Bible represents us as uh, clay in some passages. The water in the clay gives it life that allows the potter to shape it. 
So while you are alive, the majority of your volume in your body is water. Okay? When you pass, the water dries up. And that leaves the rest of you to break down into the elements that you are made of, ultimately leaving you as dust. Okay? The next one, the second one, life, the life of creatures is in the blood. Turn to Leviticus. That's two books over from Genesis. Chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, in this portion of the scripture, God is giving instructions to his people about what needs to happen with the sacrifice and what is making it so in special and why it's so important to him. But in the types of creatures that would be put onto an altar, all of them are going to be relatively advanced in terms of their blood. So it's not just water flowing through their vessels, but rather there are specialized blood cells that all have a function. Okay. And so with, in the case of a sacrifice, if enough blood is taken out of a living organism, then what happens? well, then it can no longer remain living. Without enough blood, it is not possible to remain alive. So the next one, the nature of infectious diseases. Stay in Leviticus. Turn to chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside of the camp. Now, the Bible seems to be describing some type of respiratory disease or maybe describing some kind of contact disease, but it basically goes on and illustrates a concept that we now use in public health. A couple of years ago, swine flu was in the news. And at that time, we didn't know how bad that virus was going to be. It seemed to spread very easily. And then the next question that was going to be asked is, is it going to kill a lot of people? So in the event that the virus would have been especially dangerous, the instruction would have gone out to the general public, you don't need to congregate anymore. Right? So that would put a real limit on being in church, being in school, going out to shop, or going to sporting events. And the reason is you keep people apart to not further spread the disease inside of the population. Because once a person has contracted the disease, then basically about one of two things is probably going to happen. It's either going to get them, or they are going to recover from it, and they will then no longer, in most cases, be infectious. So you break the chain of transmission, and that's the instruction that God is giving. The final one is the importance of sanitation to health. Okay, So Numbers chapter 19. Now, <clears throat> you can turn there and take a look at this. I'm not going to read this because this is an entire chapter. But there is great detail in the Bible about protocol to be followed if you come in contact with a dead animal or a dead person. Okay? So once again, you've got to be quarantined, and then after that period of quarantine, there has got to be a complete washing of both person and clothes. When any living thing is no longer alive, okay, 
it loses the ability to go on and fight off infection. So things that are dead and have been lying out in the wild or persons that have been dead and been lying around for a while, they no longer fight off any types of infection. So microorganisms will then multiply very rapidly. And as it happens, many blood-borne microbacteria are somewhat dangerous, right? They're pathogens. The final scripture, Deuteronomy 23, verses 9 through 14. Now, Scripture here is very graphic, okay? So I'm not going to read this verbatim. I'm going to go on and just kind of give an overview. But basically, the instructions are being given to in-camp soldiers, okay? And the instructions are to deal with, let's call, personal mail problems, okay, as they would have to be, and also how to properly deal with relieving oneself. And basically, God is explaining, I'm around your camp, okay? I watch over and I protect you. But as I, as I am going around the camp, I don't want to see, and my addition here, or smell anything offensive. Okay? So here are the instructions I want you to follow because as I'm going around here, if I come across something, I'm out. I'm not here anymore. I am leaving the camp. So keep your camp clean. Now we know as far as public health goes these days, it is such a blessing to be able to go on and turn on the water tap and get a glass of water and not really think much about any type of infection. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we uh, take very good care of disposing of our wastes. And that keeps from us from spreading a lot of disease, right? Again, God gives great wise instructions, again, hundreds and even thousands of years before these things could be identified by modern science. So now I'm going to go on and change the direction of the talk just here a little bit. And for the purposes of this, I'm going to go on and divide modern science into two categories. Now, now, this is not something that widely exists in other types of literature or among other types of scientifically-minded persons. This is just for the purpose of my talk here. So, modern science divided by two. Part one, operational or what is known as experimental science. This uses a scientific method and attempts to discover truth and performs observable and repeatable experiments in a controlled environment to find patterns of recurring behavior in the present physical universe. So, for example, we can test gravity. We can study the spread of disease and how to stop the spread or how to cure the disease. Or we can perform genetic crosses among things like plants. All of these would fit inside of an experimental type science thing that we can deal in the present and we can discuss the, the uh, results of here in the present. And then there is something called, or I will call, origin science. Okay? The attempt here is to discover truth by examining reliable eyewitness testimony if it is in fact available and look at circumstantial evidence, and that might include things like pottery or fossils. It might be rock formations or tools, all those things that might be left from the past. Since we cannot directly observe the past, then assumptions will greatly affect how persons or scientists then interpret what they see. And this kind of gets into the big portion of the debate when you get into that area and topic of origin science. Because at this point, there's going to be conflicting assumptions or beliefs about what happened in the past. 
So a Christian with a biblical worldview will find conflict against those who interpret from a humanist worldview. So now logically thinking, something eternal must exist. It has to. And that something could in fact be God, or that something is matter and the natural forces that exist here in this universe. It has to be one of the two. One of them has to be the start of what we now see and experience. So regardless of your viewpoint or belief, everyone has the same evidence to behold and study. So at some point, Christians are going to have to deal with some pretty heavy existential questions. And that might include, where do life's origins come from? Now, the Bible instructs us that God created the heavens and the earth and everything on the earth. That answer is not the end point, since creation is an evidence of God's existence and his power, then we should learn and study from what he has given us. If not, then has all of the matter in the universe existed forever, and can molecules bind together and gain complexity over billions of years? Scientists have spent much effort to show life starting as molecules, then gain function by mutation and natural selection over long time periods. So the slide that I'm bringing up here on the screen suggests that things like water and carbon dioxide and ammonia and methane formed ever more complex biological molecules. Now, as far as understanding the biochemical properties of molecules like DNA and proteins and carbohydrates and lipids and so on, these discoveries have been absolutely amazing advances. But if you are asking the question, can life arise without any supernatural intervention by natural force and by natural forces only, the experiments are designed by intelligence. They use objects that are made by intelligence. And the question simply cannot be solved here on Earth. It'll need to be answered by the space program. We will need to be able to leave the planet because if, in fact, life might be able to arise by natural forces alone, then we should be able to find it in a vast array throughout the universe. And even if we are successful in doing that, that is not the ultimate answer of the question. So after chemicals combine and form living molecules, do they then organize into cells? And then we do, do we move on from that point? Which brings up the next big question. So do you believe in evolution? That is a very tough and loaded question. It very much depends on how the question is asked. And it depends on, for example, is the person trying to reconcile evolution in the Bible? The Bible states that death entered into the creation from Adam's sin. If really long time periods are in question amongst the days of Genesis and the, with the creator using evolutionary forces, then evolving species would have to die. Okay? That would also imply things like sickness and violence. 
Okay? Things would be then in competition with one another, and perfection would be lacking. I am pretty sure that Almighty God can get it right on the first time, and he's not going to need any do-overs. After each day of creation, God comments that what he has done is good. Okay? So I struggle to believe that death could enter into the very good creation before sin. But is evolution a part of God's creation? Well, let's take a look at a couple of models. This one you have probably seen before, all right? This is a very simplified version of the evolutionary tree of life. So the basis of the tree shows that chemicals come together and eventually you have something like a single-celled organism of some type, right? The very basic unit of life. And then given enough time, the tree branches out showing ever more complex organisms as time moves on. Okay, commonly seen throughout um, the public and especially in lecture halls and science and things like that. I want to go on and take some time and show you the other side, uh, the other model that is often used with persons that uphold biblical creation. And this is what is called the orchard. Okay, so we move from a single tree with what the evolutionists use as their primary model and take a look at something that basically takes a lot of trees that are in place. <clears throat> if you look at the creation line at the bottom of each one of those individual trees, okay, this is time zero. This is the point of creation. Each one of those trees represents a different living thing. One of those trees might represent a plant, type of plant, might represent a tree, could represent some type of four-legged animal like a cat. It could represent mankind, could represent a bird. All right, so this is hardly exhaustive in terms of the number of things that God originally put on the planet. So what types of animals did God specifically tell us that he created in Genesis? Well, Genesis really doesn't clarify that answer very much. He mentions that there are creatures in the sea. He mentions that there are animals on the ground and that there are creatures in the sky. But he doesn't go on to elaborate what each of those are, okay? So as far as the Bible's concerned, at the point in time of creation, not only is each kind, as the Bible refers to it, created in whole, intact, and perfect, but the environment of the earth is also much different than what it is now. It is also perfect, and it allows for the sustenance of immortality at this point, right? We have no evidence of anything running down in the Garden of Eden. So now, as time goes on and each of those trees start to develop branches, <clears throat> two very significant things have happened at this point. The first of which is the entrance of sin in from Adam, okay? I don't have enough time in the talk to really explain, at least from a biological standpoint, what this probably meant in terms of why things that were perfect and immortal are now flawed and mortal, right? There's a definite time period that everything exists within. The second of which happened, second thing that which have happened, the Noahic flood, okay? The earth is nowhere near the same as what it was when it was once created. 
right? Most of us, when we think about the Noahic flood, we think about the skies to the heaven being open, and all of a sudden, God supernaturally causes rain to come down. The Bible specifically says the fountains of the deep were opened, okay? And that might make for a whole fascinating lecture in and of another time when we have some, some more time to discuss it. But the bottom line being is that the environment that the earth once was, it is not anymore, okay? So with those two major changes now, the things that God have created, the genetic material contained inside of each one, allow for them to adapt. Remember the little picture I showed of the ark? Okay, that was just showing bad shipbuilding, okay? And so bloop, 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 everything dies. Imagine if everything got off of the ark afterwards and then had no capacity to adapt after the flood. Because again, after being completely covered by water, after the major geological changes that happened during the flood, the environment is completely different. So where does each living thing then find its food? Well, now the game is completely different, and we start to have competition in between the animals. We have things now like carnivory and things like that entering into. So the trees in the orchard also show some very short branches or some very tiny little trees because there are things that are not going to make it now. Okay, they are going to become extinct. All right? The reason why I mentioned uh, this portion in my talk, I have gained a very large heart for persons that are in high school and especially folks that are getting ready to go off into college because the majority viewpoint in secular institutions isn't going to cover anything that is God-centered, and goodness knows creation is a bad word, okay? So I wanted to have a, a chance to talk, especially not with just the congregation, but to also bring message to my younger brothers and sisters about what uh, I find to be important. So I'm going to finish today with a couple of uh, examples and things like that that I work with in the microbiology laboratory. So I hold here in my hand, these are media plates, okay? The primary purpose of a media plate is to be able to cultivate bacteria, all right? These come in many different formulations. As it happens, this one here that maybe some of you can see is completely red, and that's because it has red blood cells in it. This one here that is brown has red blood cells in it, but they've all been lysed by heat. So therefore, they turn brown. They're not pretty and red anymore. And then I have a plate like this one that allows for me to grow some things and repress the growth of others. And there are a huge variety of these things to exist. I will use a tool. Again, too small for you to see, but this is what is known as a microbiologist's loop. It's basically a wire, and it has a tiny loop on the end of it. And it'll allow for me to go into a sample, to go on and pour some sample and put it onto my plate and then try to cultivate bacteria. And ultimately, if there is a problem, it will allow for me to begin to find out is there a problem organism inside of this plate? You know, nothing grows, that's an answer. If a bunch of things grow, then I've got to figure out is there a problem within what I am seeing? This little device here that was described by someone uh, ahead of service as a, a hairdryer <clears throat> is an incinerator, okay? So basically it converts electricity into heat, and I will take my loop once I've used it 
and put it inside and it will sterilize by heat this loop and allow for me to then use it again. For me to come to a good outcome with my work, I have to be extremely careful with my media, okay? In the places in which I'm working, like for example, if I were trying to do a workup here in the church sanctuary, well, I may be putting things of interest on the plate, but with it open and exposed in here, I might get some things on there I do not want. I get contamination on my plate, all right? And some things, especially if you get a fungus on your plate, your whole, fl your whole plate gets covered, all right? And basically the work is ruined and you need to start over and, and find a way to deal with it. So I want to use these plates as so, sort of an analogy for your life, okay? Every one of these is prepared with a lot of care because we don't want anything on them that need not be. All of these have a very specific formulation. They were all designed for a purpose. So use these as an analogy for your life. Okay? You were designed by God for a purpose. Now, for example, when your life is in here inside of the church, okay, this is a very nourishing environment. And the things that will be absorbed onto your life are things that you want to cultivate and keep. But at some point, we inevitably leave out of the church. We go back into our places of work. We go back into our places of schooling, right? Whatever environment it is, the secular environment beyond this place. And at that point, when exposed, sometimes we get contaminants on our lives. And when they get on there, sometimes they are extremely, extremely hard to deal with. And in really bad cases, they can completely overgrow your life, right? That's the nature of some sins. They will completely take over, just like when I get things like a fungus on my microbiological media plate. So I offer encouragement, especially for my youngest friends in here, right? God created you. He's got a purpose for your life. I want to read a final scripture. This is one of my favorites from the Bible, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. At the end of every church service, we always offer an invitation so if you want to join this church or give your life to Jesus Christ, you are oh so welcome to do so. There will be an elder or elders up here to receive you. Let's all stand as we sing.